0: When revolution comes, how enthusiastically should we charge into our new lives? How easy is it to completely reconfigure your life plan? I'm Angus Stewart, and you're listening to the Translated Chinese Fiction Podcast, and I'm wondering, how are your life plans going now that you're in lockdown? Well, maybe you're not in lockdown, maybe you're in China and lockdown's already over, but... If you're like me, you are in lockdown, and you're relying on podcasts to stay sane. Well good news, because in this episode, episode 31, there's lots of fantastic content that should be very good for your sanity. I'm going to be talking about the author Su Tong with Anya Goncharova, formerly of Penguin China now with the Peony Literary Agency. She's my guest for the episode, and there's a fantastic chat lying in wait for you in this episode uh, that I had with her. We talk about male writers writing about women and women's lives, which is exactly what Su Tong does in the story we're going to be talking about, Petulia's Rouge and also just in lots of his works. Uh, we'll also be talking about Wade Giles versus Pinyin, the ultimate smackdown. Well, Not really, uh, it's not so adversarial, but the pros and cons and qualities of each each of those systems for all you nerds out there. Also featuring in the conversation will be quarantines. You will find out what a quarantine is if you did not already know. And you'll also get to hear who myself and my guest would like to be if we could be anyone from any time and anywhere in Chinese history. And I hope you'll meditate on that question too, because it's fun, you should do it. But before any of that, and before my chat with Anya, it's time for the Trisha News. Okay, so there's quite a lot of news items today, so I'm going to try and get through them nice and quickly. Our first one is about Xia Jia, um, the sci-fi author who was a guest, a previous guest on this show. Uh, that episode was about a collection of her translated uh, short stories called A Summer Beyond Your Reach. Well, there's been some movement on the Summer Beyond Your Reach front. Uh, Clark's World, who are going to be the publishers or are the publishers of that, have released it in ebook form to their Kickstarter backers as of a couple days ago. They've also stated that it looks like it will be available for purchase for like general consumers uh, later this year, probably the fourth quarter of the year. That statement, which is a tweet by the way, a lot of this news comes from Twitter, uh, doesn't extrapolate on whether that general availability will be an ebook or print. My guess would be ebook, but I'm, you know, when you make assumptions, you make an ass. No, when you assume you make an ass out of you and me. So I'm not going to assume. I'm just going to say doesn't state whether that general release will be print or ebook. Print would be very cool. I'm hoping they do print, but we shall see. Okay, this next piece of news might, well, it will be out of date almost certainly by the time you're listening, but um, it's an interesting thing that was brought to my attention. Comma um, Press, who recently published The Book of Shanghai, some short stories from writers based in or writing about Shanghai, uh, they discounted a, an ebook this week, um, which is a very similar deal, a book in a similar ballpark. It's called Chong Stories from Urban China. So it's Books, sorry, it's short stories from cities, but not specifically Shanghai. The little tweet said The stories in this anthology offer snapshots of 10 of China's cities, from ice cold Harbin in the north to the manufacturing powerhouse of Guangzhou, which by the way is in the south and it's very hot, unlike Harbin. Uh, so that was up for just £1.99. Uh, I'm seeing pounds by the way because they're a company based in Manchester, a city in England in the UK, a country which uses pounds, not US dollars. Not yet, anyway. The third item of fig news is literally another thing I found out about on Twitter. Um, so there's a podcast called Barbarians at the Gate, and it features Montgomery well, the new episode of it, or a new episode of it, um, features Laszlo Montgomery of the China History podcast. The first China podcast I ever listened to, by the way and David Moser, who is an author that is going to pop up in my conversation with Anya in this episode, talking about Chinese history, US-China relations, and Laszlo's semi-secret identity in the trenches of US-China trade. So this, this one um, interested me not necessarily because of the topic, there are enough China business podcasts as it is, but yeah, it's a pretty star lineup there, so you should check that out barbarians at the gate and it's the episode well the whole podcast obviously check it out but this episode I'm giving you news about is a recent one and it's got David Moser and Laszlo Montgomery and those are some good names together a crossover episode as it were so check that out okay the last piece of news is really up my alley and it's the tradition of having at least one thing from Paper Republic in my Church of the New Segments. This is the one. If you're wondering why I wasn't talking about Paper Republic, that's because it was the last segment. Uh, or it was going to be the last segment. So, um, Read Paper Republic put up a little essay, or one in a series, of uh, I think a weekly series of essays on the coronavirus as it has manifested in China. So this is an essay by Ai Yi, who I've uh, covered on the show before, uh, doing his novel, A Perfect Crime. And it's translated by a translator who's been on the show and who seems to crop up pretty much every episode. Seemed, I think there might have been one or two he's missed, but a regular name on this show, Dylan Levi King. So Dylan Levi King translated an essay by Ai Yi about coronavirus. Its English name is A Message Held to the Flame. You can read that on Paper Republic and the link will be in the show notes. Just like uh, every, every news item uh, from the Church of Think News will have some sort of link in the show notes. So check that out. I actually haven't read it yet, to my shame, uh, but I'm really, really looking forward to doing that because IE's bleak worldview and Doan Levi King's sardonic worldview, as I understand it, I think are a good combo. I'm sure this will be a fun read. Maybe fun's the wrong adjective. I'm sure it will be a read. Now that's the end of the Trisha Fake news, so without further delay, let's hear the chat I had with Anya. And a very good chat it was too. Here we go. Okay, so I'm on the show with Anya Goncharova. Hello! Anya, how's it going today?
1: It's going alright. We're on week 16 of the quarantine, I think. 16, 17? Something um, around that.
0: That's Doing okay? China, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm in Shanghai.
0: Shanghai. Is it looking kind of weird and ghostly outside on the street still? Or is it looking closer to what was once normal?
1: It's definitely looking normal. It's very, very normal. It's almost eerie normal. It's like everybody has collective immunity and everybody's just decided to cancel the pandemic here. Mm. But in a good way, I guess. Um, people are being careful. Everybody's wearing masks. But it does feel like a normal polluted day, but with no pollution.
0: Mm, that's weird that things can flip back so quickly.
1: Yeah, you would have thought, but yeah. So I'm staying, I'm staying inside just because mm. I work inside, so I don't really have much reason to go out. Um, but otherwise, yeah, how are you?
0: I'm good. Uh, I'm envious of what I understand is quite nice sunny weather in Shanghai. Here in Scotland we've got normal weather for this time of year, which is basically just grey. Nothing very exciting. Nothing very terrible, just grey and not very warm. Uh, but I'm safe in the countryside, and I have nice views of horses and rabbits out my windows. So it could be a lot worse.
1: Very nice. That sounds perfect, actually.
0: Yeah, close to perfect. Um, if there was a bar which I could go to nearby, which somehow wasn't getting shut down for being open, that would be nice. But that's that's a fantasy. No one's got that. So Yeah, yeah.
1: but you, you have scenes at home, right? I have what, sorry? You have quarantinis. Oh,
0: quarantinis. (laughs) Yeah. um, Well, I don't know if Eden Eden Mill Gin uh, is famous enough to have reached Shanghai, but it's a popular gin in Scotland, part of the Scottish Gin Revolution. I think it's a thing down in England too. And where I'm staying is just down the road from the Eden Mill. And there's a little nice. little corner shop in the town, which you know normally they'd never sell bottles of gin, but they stock some of the stranger varieties of Eden Mill, fresh from the distillery, I guess. So yeah, I've got my quarantinis, so life is good.
1: Nice. That's all I want to hear.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, well, what I'd like to hear, and what the listeners probably more so would like to hear, is a little bit about yourself. What can you tell them?
1: Um. So... Not, well, I don't know. I love solitary walks on the beach, books. No, um, so I think <laughs> the, the main thing is that uh, my name is Anya Gonshirova. I was born and raised in Beijing. So I am kind of, I've been here for a while. So my lockdown in China began when I was born and kind of never ended. And um, I have Russian heritage. Uh, so I work between three languages, English, Russian, and Chinese. I got into publishing by accident, didn't we all? But looking back at it now, my father is a Chinese historian, so it doesn't really seem like it was all that big of an accident. Yeah, I lived in the UK for a little bit. um, For three years, went to university, got back to China, thought I would do lifestyle journalism. Again, didn't we all? (laughs) That didn't really work out. Um, I ended up just writing too many book reviews and um, worked a little bit for BBC, radio and TV, worked in Cosmopolitan, magazine, PR. um, And then I got my first sort of real publishing gig as an editorial assistant at Penguin Random House North Asia. And I was an editorial assistant for a year maybe. And then after a year, I learned everything I could about everything. And then the editor left. So I took over the department and I was heading the English language department of Penguin Random House North Asia, more commonly known as Penguin China. Um, for about three years or so that is my cat trying to get out again so he can't decide and i have a cat i have a very beautiful epileptic cat is the
0: cat also involved in publishing or is it just yourself
1: um the cat doesn't know how to read but i'm working on it
0: okay it
1: may be the first cat that learns how to read
0: Mm, i'm actually my reading right now is a bit of a in a feline kind of zone i I'm reading a ebook of "I Am a Cat." I, I don't know the Japanese author's name, but that a Japanese book from the perspective of a cat, mm. and that's with the intention of pairing it with a "Cat Country" Bao Lao uh,
1: Oh, nice! Which I guess
0: in English that's that's a Penguin book. I don't think it's a Penguin China book. Um, it is. It is all yeah. right. Cool. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, one of ours. We did it with the UK. Um, but actually, one thing I didn't say is what I do now. So mm. right now, yes. <laughs> I'm a literary agent. So I moved on from Penguin uh, Random House, North Asia, maybe. So it was literally the pandemic started. I left everything in the office and then I just could never go back again to get my stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's still there, <laughs> but I'm an agent now. And I work with p e Literary Agency And as well. Peony works with Tenderleaves, uh, which is a translation company. And I work as sort of an editor and agent for them too. So you know, in between the two spaces.
0: Right. And, um, I know I should be asking more about peony or tender leaves, but um, I didn't actually know—probably um, just because of my own ignorance—about penguin North Asia before you mentioned it. I only knew penguin China. So, does penguin North Asia does that include um, literary things to do with Mongolia and Korea and Russia at all, or what, what does what, what does penguin North China North Asia kind of encompass?
1: So it is It is more inclusive. So there is also an office in Korea, um, and I think there are about two people in that office. Right. So they are there, so therefore it is North Asia. Um, but it is mostly Penguin China. So we have, I think... It's more colloquial in terms of Penguin China, but the official name is Penguin Random House North Asia. So it's right. as, so as an editor when I was working there, I wasn't just limited to China, but obviously with my background and with everything going on, and as well as being based in China, it was the most interesting thing for us to do, and we really wanted to mm-hmm. build it up as a list that was you know your go-to list for Chinese literature and books about China.
0: Cool. And to bring things a wee bit back to uh, Peony and Tender Leaves, I'd like to ask a question about. Well, those two, and also Penguin China, a nice broad question. How do they fit into the world of CTE, so Chinese to English translation, and also maybe, I don't know, E to C, English to Chinese translation, or indeed translation to and from other languages?
1: Um, so just in general, I guess they are about promoting literature from and about China. Mm. And I think that there was like this really cheesy but kind of cool French catchphrase on the social media for Penguin. There went something along the lines of exploring the Great Wall of China books or something like that. But that kind of really does sum it up. Mm. Um, So it is just about the main point that Penguin China really wanted to get across is that there are so many great books about China as well as there's so many books that need to be translated from Chinese. And it was making that Mm. translation seamless and bringing it to the reader's in a very accessible and fun way, um, as well as bringing some of the books that may be a little bit more challenging to a reader of a different culture, but making them sort of interesting enough that you'd want to pick them up. And part of that was also, you know, working with big organizations uh, like People Republic. um, And kind of we all, as you know, the circle is so small that you get to work with everybody really closely And Penguin China was very much part of that small circle. It was a big, big company that it's part of. But Penguin China itself is just a few really awesome people that I really, really miss (laughs) that are doing all the hard work. So it is just kind of putting the publisher behind the great ideas that everybody had.
0: (laughs) Right. And um, can you tell us what is awesome about the Peony Literary Agency?
1: Um, so many things, so many. (laughs) Um, so Peony is, first of all, it's, it does kind of a similar thing. Um, so it's promoting literature from and about China, but it also does cover the whole region, covers the whole of Asia. So it is broader, but also it's this completely female led team. Um, so it's Tenderleaves. So Tenderleaves, um, is the same and it is just women coming together and working on really cool books. Um, and that's, really awesome. And what else? It was started by Marisha, who I think was started in 2009. And she kind of did it all herself. Um, So it's it's very much Kind of like a passion project that turned into so much more. So I'm very, very excited to be part of
0: it. So things you were saying about publishing books that are accessible, commercial, appealing, and also a kind of a literary zone that's very women-focused are kind of appropriate for our book for this episode because we're doing petulia's Rouge Tin by Su Tong, and that's definitely a very female-focused book. And the edition, well, the English translation edition that I read is a one of the Penguin Specials from Penguin China. So it's kind of like a I suppose you could call it a novella or novelette or something. It's in the same series of a couple of other books I've covered on the show, Radish and Flock of Brown Birds. So it's this we book, and it's about to put, kind of put it simply, the lives of some very special women in a particular period in China. Um, and it's by Su Tong, who often writes about the women of China. So the first questions I've got for you are about Su Tong himself. So first one I want to ask you is, what was your first encounter with his writing?
1: Well, um, so this one was actually really hard to remember, but I think I read Rice first. Um, and I by no means have read all of Su Tong's books. I have seen the films, the film adaptations, um, but I haven't read everything, nor have I read a lot of his stuff in Chinese. So I have read a lot of translation, but I haven't read um, everything in its original Chinese. I have read Hong Feng, which is Petulius Rushtan in Chinese as well. Mm. But... I remember thinking, so reading Rice, which is kind of known for the weirdness of it all, I just remember thinking, wow, how does a character like that come back from this? And he never did. So <laughs> just a little bit about it. It's, I think it's set in like the 1930s. Um, and it's I think it's a Goldblatt translation. So it's kind of, you know, translation royalty. And it's right. all about power, sex, money. And it's all part of the same, you know, search for the greater whatever uh power i guess in general yeah. but patulia's roostin compared to that it's you know it's a lot more mellow fluid and you don't need a strong stomach for, to read patulia's roostin which i think is also a really nice thing
0: mm. yeah it's not a massively heavy book like it's not going to leave no. you distraught by the end
1: <laughs> you'd hope not
0: no <laughs> um what you said about having seen a lot of the film versions of his stuff that was a, a thing i had known without having read any Sutong and without having seen any of the film adaptations is maybe a bit like Yu Hua and To Live. Mm. He seems to be an author one hears about through or because of the film adaptations. At least that's how the impression I got. Um, So I suppose I should supplement this question about when you first encountered his writing with what was the first uh, Sutong filmic adaptation that you saw, if you can remember.
1: Oh, it was probably his biggest one um although actually no maybe i did i have a feeling that before i started working on petulia's rush that i might have seen one of the film adaptations um about like about the book Mm -hmm. and i think it carries the same name and i think there were two adaptations but i honestly haven't seen any of the films again for a while either so i'm not I don't know, I'm not really I love I love all sorts of storytelling, but I really am kind of I remember books a lot more than I remember films. Films tend to blend into one for me, mm. and I don't know actors names. So it's all it's all a little bit. It's like a realm that I don't really know how to tap into just yet. <laughs>
0: Yeah, my thoughts has been on memory a lot lately. Um, maybe partly because the last two episodes uh, have dealt with it. Song Aman's Gongsun's Dreams, which is about remembering possibly mm. your ancestors' uh, past and Face, Flock of Brown Birds, which is kind of about a blockage or a failure in a guy's memory. Um, but I had a, a, a moment where what was I saw an excerpt from uh, Bizarre of Bad Dreams by Stephen King and mm. I did not recognize the excerpt at all but I knew when I saw it that I'd read the book. But I had absolutely mm. no memory of where I was when I was reading the book. And I had to think hard for like a good minute before I could even recall reading this damn book where I was. I knew I was. it was when I was living in Shanghai. And that prompted me a few nights ago to stay up until about 3am, I think, just trying to write a list of all the books I read whilst I was in Shanghai. for So that's oh period, two and a half years. Because um, it was bothering me that much that I only remembered a few of them. It's mm. got me one what you said has me kind of wondering what sticks in the mind harder, films or books. And yeah, depend on what mindset you're in. I mean, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. This is just this is just what's been bothering me and literally <laughs> up until three AM.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I guess I guess for me it would definitely be just I think what I remember the most are words. I think that's what really resonates with me in my mm. brain. And I think, so if I hear anything on a podcast, let's say, I'll be able to retell you that whole podcast. But if I'm watching it, I think there is just so much. Maybe it's just my brain's too simple and you can't, you know, go from, okay, you have to focus on the scenery and the details of that. And also remember everything that everybody's saying, because you kind of tend to focus on one particular thing. Um, So I think definitely for me, it would just be words and what people are saying. So I could, if I'm watching a film, I think I would just tend to focus on sort of one aspect of it and remember that it was immensely beautiful or that this mm. actor was so great in it, but I might not remember everything that was said or the whole plot line, just remember that I enjoyed it or not. But with a book, you kind of tend to focus on because you have so much more that you need to think about and kind of for your brain to fill in those gaps for you to visualize it. I think I just remember the whole experience of it from sort of the beginning to the end and right. the same with podcasting. So, I think it's different unless you and I also have amnesia. <laughs> it's just possible. <laughs> totally and possible. you know, totally. Yeah. I won't remember this conversation, but you it know. will be okay.
0: Yeah, I well, will forget it and then it will come come back, flash back into my memory out of nowhere. Although obviously talking about forgetting a podcast that you're recording is a bit redundant because it's being committed to the internet pretty soon. Uh, and my hard drive but yeah Uh,
1: (laughs) you should write it down
0: (laughs) yes i'll make a transcript that'll be a good
1: yeah
0: (laughs) um continuing on to talk about uh su tong so maybe maybe this relates to like how strongly things stick in your mind or how appropriate he is for film adaptations because i've read um two of his stories this one Hong fun and um yellow bird yellow bird chronicle which i believe is coming out pretty soon under the title Mm -hmm. shadow of the hunter um and what I've got based on those two books is that they're um, very lively and um, mm. very kind of the liveliness comes from the characters and the kind of situations they find themselves in and their conflicts. People seem to kick off quite easily. Um, although based on my experience in China and walking around in the street, sometimes, yeah, people do kick off really easily. Yeah. So they're lively and sometimes almost melodramatic, but they're also always placed, at least from what I gather, his stories are always placed at a particular time in China's history or its development often seems to be the 20th century, although not always. So would you say um, he's a good choice for someone who's looking for an entry point, like their first few pieces of uh, fiction from China, because his books are not dry? And because they're placed in historical contexts, would he be like a good first Chinese author for someone to read?
1: Yeah, definitely. I think so. I think, well, I mean, there are plenty of authors that would be a good entry point. Hmm. I think the thing that does bother me just in general about reading, and this is my time to finally let out this thought that I've been having, is since we've all been in quarantine, I'm realizing that many people in today's information age, just are always looking to learn something and to place Mm. something in some sort of history or to figure something out, like some bigger piece of the puzzle that they can't really, you know, figure out elsewhere. And I just kind of wish we're all in an Austin novel and just we're reading for the fun of it. But yes, he would be a really good author if you are looking for something like that, because he does have the historical background for that. Um, And he has a kind of magical touch that everyone falls in love with. Um, And his writing is very accessible very easy to read and he's very very good at the setting and placing the reader in that particular setting again yeah because his works are adopted into films um, they're also really good for book clubs because i know many book clubs kind of go from you know reading a book to a netflix party where they discuss it right and yeah so i would say try reading him just for the fun of it <laughs> not as a chinese author but just as an author that <clears> you <throat> Uh, interested in and um, enjoy yourself in your sunday dress with a cup of tea like you're in an austin novel
0: yep well that's what i've been doing <laughs> don't know about everyone else that's um, good <laughs> yeah what you said about people you know having this kind of depressingly utilitarian approach to absolutely everything trying to make everything a thing to add to their mm-hmm. i don't know their internal hard drive or their cv or whatever you want to call it a thing that came up in my reading uh, for my master's uh, dissertation, which was on Chinese translated Chinese sci-fi, but also about the kind of market as a whole. Uh, and this was an idea I cited and used in my own uh, paragraphs, was that there was some academics so I had identified something that was quote unquote uh, problematic about some of the ways mm. the books were uh, presented, especially like with the, um, the quotes or the text on their blurbs. So paratext used to kind of frame the book. A lot of them would say something like, this book is a insight into modern China or a picture mm. of, of modern China. So selling the book. <laughs> a fiction book is non-fiction, basically. Um, right. And the, I think I've said on the podcast before, one of the worst uh, offending cases of this was the English edition of uh, Lenin's Kisses by <laughs> uh, Yan Lianko. Which it's just so funny. I mean, I've not read the book, but I know it's somewhat... A somewhat surreal tale and the fact that um, a publisher would market a semi-surreal novel as a piece of kind of informative nonfiction is unintentionally rather funny but yeah I guess in the case of Su Tong like it's an, an uh, Petulia's Rouge Tin it's not surreal it's realist but it's fairly mm. heightened
1: mm. yeah for sure and I think I think there is value in kind of having everything you consume to then have an output of some sort and of course you do learn if you read more, but I think you just are also enjoying yourself. And I do, I do wish that people just enjoyed themselves a little more and kind of saw books as more of an entertainment than a thing to be feared or have some sort of you know, result at the end of it. Because yeah. sometimes it doesn't need that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I find as, as a reader, if I'm reading something because I have to or because I feel I should or to learn something, to tick a box, I read it slowly. And I'm reading mm. slowly because I'm not immersed and not having fun. Whereas if I'm uh, if I'm just reading it because I'm enjoying it and because I want to read it and I'm interested, I power through it. So if you take this kind of crazy business mindset where everything has to have utility, it ironically means you should read books for fun because you will read more efficiently.
1: Yeah, but yeah, it's like if you what was that? It, there is that thing where it's like what's that game where you have to think of a word but not think of the word like.
0: uh like uh, where you, like if I need you to say elephant and I say it's big and it's gray. And then,
1: yeah, 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 exactly.
0: Uh, right. Like that,
1: right? So you, you can't, you just have to get in the habit of reading and enjoying yourself and not mm-hmm. feeling like everything has to be work, yes. which is hard, but mm. you have to get there. <laughs>
0: Indeed. Okay. We agree on that. Excellent. <laughs> now, um, in every episode, there's usually at least one question I ask, which has a huge preamble. And that's this question. So I'm just going to read this one off the page. I might add a bit, but basically I'm going to read this one off the page. Mm-hmm. So Sutong seems to write a lot, and that's in all caps, about the wives of women. And based on the reading, so th- just the two things I've read and my understanding, uh, the issues of sex slash sexual oppression slash just sexual conduct and misconduct come up a lot and then That's LOT in all caps again. So my feeling just in general about male writers who write from female perspectives is there's there's a little bit of a spectrum, kind of a spectrum of good and bad if we're being really kind of uh, simplistic about it. So at the um, quote unquote bad end of the spectrum, the extreme end, there's lots of really criminal examples which you can find if you uh, Google something like male writers writing women and then your top result is a BuzzFeed list of ridiculous descriptions that do not sound anything like a woman's life written by a man and some of those are horribly sexist and then at the other end there's some really incredible efforts so there was a book um I read in higher English in school uh, a Scottish novel called Sunset Song by a male writer called Lewis grassett Gibbon but it's from the perspective of a girl growing well a girl who grows up to become a woman and it's just amazing that it, it wasn't written by a woman especially some of the more I don't know, the things particular to that girl's experience that Louis Grassick gibbon wouldn't have experienced directly, but he handles it in a totally sincere, um, genuine, authentic, and what's the word? Thoughtful? Caring seems not quite the word I'm looking for, but he, he just seems to be coming from a good place, so to speak. And then the kind of weirdest place on this spectrum is the middle. There's... Right. I guess he's not just a writer, he's a director, but there's David Lynch, who seems to be very focused on women and does have some of that kind of sincerity. But there are some like focuses in, in his films that you could call problematic or maybe even sexist or even fetishistic. And then there's other even stranger cases, like another director and writer, Joss Whedon, who like from one angle and one time, the past, was for some people a feminist hero writing characters like Buffy. But from another angle and today's time and things we've learned, he kind of seems like he's a creepy, dishonest, shitty guy who's both personal conduct and his writing had some nasty sides or some very dodgy sides. So that was probably the biggest mansplain I've done in my life. Um, (laughs) I just want to ask you, (laughs) yeah, the point of it all is as a female reader, um, what do you think about Su Tong as a male writer who's writing about women and the issues women face. Is he? Where is he, If he's on this spectrum, if you think the spectrum is useful, is he a Lewis Grassett Gibbon? Is he a David Lynch? Is he a Joss Whedon? Or is he just himself? And is my way of thinking at things not really useful in this case?
1: Right. Um, so. I- I mean, it's a really interesting question. <sighs> okay. So I think in the start, I think just like any marginalized group, if you take any marginalized group, there will always be people who give voice to those that are silent. So mm. just like you say, Gibbon did. Whether that voice is accurate, you know, or accurate enough is a good question. So um, I must say that my immediate reaction to any, any man writing women is that of course women would be able to write themselves way, way better. And they most often do. Mm. Um, the truth of it, is that men have had years of practice of writing in general and that women just haven't because the idea of the novel was born in a patriarchal society. So there have been a lot more male writers than there have been female writers. So Su wrote this in 91. Um, right. Did he write this in 91? I think he did.
0: Yeah, I've got it here. 91.
1: Yeah. So he wrote this in in 91. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) (laughs) That's, that's an interesting question as well. So why did he do that? Anyway, so even, so he wrote this in 91 and while the famous cliche, I think in China, right, is that you must, have you had somebody say this? The whole women hold up to have the sky thing. Yes, and from a
0: Mao's Mao's statement, isn't it?
1: Yeah, so I feel like that should be a drinking game every time somebody mentions that. But anyway, (laughs) so even if you think about that cliche alone, right, that Mao is saying... They didn't actually hold up half the sky because at the same time, they were still expected to be mothers and primary care providers and in general be good wives, whatever the hell that means. So the systematic silencing of women, and I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that in 91, the life of a male writer like Sotong was and still is very different today. So men could sit and think and write and very much like Su Tong, he he had the privilege to kind of sit and think and write write about the females that he was writing. So yes, he did a good job of it. Mm. And if only women could sit and write without any interruptions, and if we didn't have the patriarchy sort of mapping out our every move, and we we might have had an Anna Karenina written by a woman, not Tolstoy. Um, And I do think Anna Karenina is a great, great example of an amazing female character written by a man. But the truth of it is, though, it wasn't even playing field at the time, nor is it now women to write themselves and for men to write women and vice versa. And even though women now are writing, obviously if I had to compare him to any of the three people you mentioned, we can't really do that because first of all, all those three men are white. All of them have grown up in a completely different culture than him. So he doesn't really fit into any of their categories, nor... I mean, good on him as well, because, I mean, if anybody's going to be compared to Whedon, then, you know, (laughs) it's horrible. Um, But um, I think just when Sudong has praised himself for writing these female characters, it is also because he had that privilege. It it is really, really a privilege. So to think about and develop himself as an author in this way, and that's why he was praised, and that's why he's still praised today. It's part of a cycle, I think, um, that female writers are still working on breaking, and they are breaking it very successfully. And the whole idea of which of the three evils is he, and is he, he's part of the same system? I think he's probably just himself. Um, mm. But I think most of most of that question really resides on the fact that all of these men, what they had in common is the privilege to kind of experiment and to write about things and to think about them. And to and Su Tong did do his research. I mean, he went and talked to his neighbor, who's a prostitute, um, to write the book. He didn't make it up. He, you know, he did his research and he does seem very sincere, I think. And although in bits also odd, um, as many of my friends would agree, we don't really fondle each other's breasts at random or anything like that. Um, so yeah, he's definitely himself. And if I had to say, would I read Su Dong describing a woman and, you know, speaking from a female point of view, or would I read any female writer like Zhang Ailing or Wang Ai talking about a female, you know, and writing about a female character? I would definitely pick the latter because they would do it better. But yeah, he had years of practice and just the systematic practice of patriarchy, defining what is good writing, what is a novel, how do we define what is a good female in a character, what is, you know, what is a good plot line, et cetera, et cetera. So I think in general, still female writers are just not on the same level, in the same playing field and it's it kind of sucks so yeah he's definitely himself um, but would a book like this be written with more nuance by a woman yes (laughs) um but yeah it's all in context so sometimes writing is great in this book but maybe also go and read Zhang ai ling Mm -hmm. or any other female writer that's writing around the same period
0: yeah now there's two things i want to say i'm going to mentally bookmark them now so i don't start on one and forget the other uh one's about how prevalent or not female writers are in China in different genres. That's the one I'm going to start on. And the other one's about other kinds of marginalization, which you kind of started to talk about a wee bit. Mm. Okay, so the first thing about W- whether today things have changed for female writers in China. So th- I am by no means an expert. I'm not in the Chinese. I'm not in Chinese publishing. I'm not Chinese. I'm not woman. I'm not even an author. Um, but just based. I'm on not
1: th- even an author. No. Just a guy who knows everything about just, everybody's business because we have a podcast <laughs> talking about it. <laughs> so I feel like uh, you're a good person to I'm, talk about it.
0: I'm the digital panopticon. In <laughs> the, that's me, the content master. Uh, yeah. So. In the things I've learned through doing my uh, dissertation and this podcast, I've had a few. Well, I've had quite a few translators of Chinese uh, female authors, and I've had one female author on herself, Xia Jia. Mm. So, um, th- there was an episode I did with the translator Nikki Harmon, who uh, was the translator, and I think also a friend of her, uh, her author Yang Gu, who the mm. author of the Chili Bean Paste Clan. And Nikki Harmon said. Without giving any like naming and shaming or whatever, she said Yang Ge had told her some stories of being at like literary events that were at how can I just very patriarchal. There was like lots of booze being put around. She was kind of expected to form a particular role as like the token female author. And mm. so it's and, and she's ended up leaving China. I mean, she'll have her own reasons for doing that, but you get the sense there that and she, she's a literary writer. That's my point. Right. So I, I got the sense from talking to Nikki that if you're a female writer in the literary scene, like they, they exist, but they maybe are still struggling, I guess, with basically the patriarchy as it manifests in right. the Chinese literary world. But this is all second-hand or even third-hand info just impressions the other thing i was gonna oh no no sorry the other author i was going to mention was xia Jia, who was um mm. on the podcast to talk about her upcoming uh, collection of translation of her stories uh, a summer beyond your reach so she's mm. a sci-fi writer and also an academic and a thing and or at least an impression i've had from chinese sci-fi is it's not nearly as um man heavy man dominated <laughs> As the, like the quote-unquote literary writing right the older writers are mostly men and the older writers are interestingly also mostly hard sci-fi so more science mm. physics sci-fi and it seems like in the younger wave or generation of chinese sci-fi writers the balance of men and women is much more equal and also it's not all quite so hard sci-fi whether or not those two things mm. are linked i'm not going to get into um but that 's an interesting thing i've noticed i it 's not really a question just a, a response <laughs> to what you were your answer now the other thing was about different kinds of uh, privilege or marginalization so uh, this kind of called two different books to mind so one was that sunset song I mentioned so you said that mm. uh, the character the main character was a marginalized figure uh, mm. she 's called chris raddy she 's a mm. woman rural like early 20th century rural scotland so yeah she's definitely marginalized but there's other kind of axes or uh, ways in which she's marginal she's she's a farmer she lives in the countryside so i don't know how many authors were coming from the chinese uh, not the chinese the scottish countryside to become writers probably not many whereas i think lewis grassett gibbon i don't know he was a i imagine he wasn't completely a farmer i think he'd become an urbanite or had been born an urbanite so there's that angle Mm. And also the 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 book is written with a very particular place in mind, the Scottish North East, which is far mm. away from the literary centres of um like Edinburgh and other cities. So there's the kind of regional marginalization and class or economic marginalization. And this does kind of translate into a question um, about whether or not you think there's anything interesting in terms of class or region in Petulia's Rujetan or in Sutong's writing in general. And while I was thinking about representation of rural people by non-rural people, that made me think of a book about China written in English, um, one that's really well liked in China, The Good Earth by Pearl. Uh, Parolles' book. Have you, have you read that one?
1: No, I have not.
0: <laughs> well, I haven't. Yeah, I mean, when if you, if you were to read the blurb, you might think it was going to be an absolute feast of quote unquote problematicness. It's um, mm. it's a tale of rural China written, I think, in the 30s, set earlier than the 30s, by an American woman who was living there, not working as a farmer, and it's written about uh, like the story of a man's life, and his life as basically a peasant. But mm. the thing is, it's amazing and it's loved <laughs> by Chinese people and she was writing, no one before her, um, The Chi- I'm not just saying this as an impression, this is something I've mm. kind of researched and also talked to Chinese people about. No one in China was writing about the peasants before her, mm. even in Chinese. So she's maybe like a textbook example of a really wholesome example of writing for the voiceless, even if it yeah. wasn't in the same language as, as the voiceless. Mm. That's not really a question. Maybe we'll have something to respond to that. But uh, yeah, the question I've got is maybe definitely about region and economic status in relation to Petrullius Tin.
1: Well, well, I think think it's great that we have many people writing about various things. And I don't think, in general, just going on your point, I don't believe that there is one perfect author for any story. Mm. But at the same time, yeah, you have to kind of contextualize everything that you're saying. So, I mean, I don't know when... Is, is her Chinese name Sai Jun Zhu? Uh,
0: let me see. <laughs> um, is
1: this what I'm... Yeah. Anyway. Um, <laughs> I'll
0: look that up while you answer.
1: Yeah. So let's say she was writing in, let's say, the 30s. Um, so, you know, the, the, the context then would have been very different. And it's great that it opened doors. But again, me as a white person that lives in the French concession, going to write about the Chinese farmer um, would be problematic in so many yes. respects in 2020. Um, so I would steer clear away from that not just myself but like as a general you know PSA <laughs> let's not do that but yeah so in terms of class divide um, in particular in particular I think yeah class definitely pays you, you know it, it is part of the book it's part it's one of the themes in it um, I think in general it's kind of interesting for me to talk about class in general, um, in relation to Chinese literature, ch- Chinese context, and talking to you, let's say um, you know you live in the UK, and if I'm being completely honest, I have never experienced so much class struggle <laughs> as i have <laughs> when i lived in the uk people talk about class all the time mm. and they talk about it constantly and it's a big divider and you know and i don't think anybody really talks about class until somebody said there is going to be no class we're all middle class now you know and <laughs> it's a very i don't know if maybe i'm wrong but this is just the impression that i got that kind of people try to box you in as a you know one class or whatever um and try to separate and people are very proud of their you know class hierarchy um and in china that particular class divide of course is also present and is present everywhere but in particular really because it is also about the transformation of china and trying to you know eliminate class systems because we're moving into communism we're moving into the new china it is quite an interesting book to see how the people who came out from nothing um, and were very happy with their own freedom and how they had to give up that freedom to become part of a system that no longer recognized any sort of class that actually fed their income. Um, So yeah, I think it's, it's an interesting question. At the same time, I can't really speak too much about the way that Chinese authors feel about the different class device within the Chinese uh, society and how that affects their own lives because i'm not i'm not the chinese author um i do i do really sympathize with younger who experienced that because i have also seen instances where that has happened and it's not it's not fair and it's extremely upsetting um and it does also happen in western societies all the time where right, you are yeah. placed in a box in a token box or anything like that and um yeah and i do think that what you say about um Sci-fi is very interesting as well, and that's great. And I think more female writers in general, more voices that can represent different, you know, points of view, the better we are off. Um, at the same time, in China, also we have a big population that is just completely silent—not women, but people of who are not Han Chinese—and um, right. that's, you know, a whole other thing. Um, so there is so much to talk about here, so I feel like you should probably get somebody who actually knows a lot more than me <laughs> who doesn't just um need books for a living to discuss right. it, but yeah it's a, it's a hugely interesting topic um
0: well, I'd, but, I'd love to um, get people on the show who are from outside the world of publishing and translation, but it seems I have to do a lot to convince anyone that they would have anything relevant to talk about, but of course, they do because books are about reality, everyone lives in reality, you know.
1: Yeah, and entertainment
0: mm. and fun. Yeah, books are fun <laughs> as well. Uh, also, I've googled Pearl's book, and yeah, uh, Wikipedia has her Chinese name in the second line, uh, Tsai Jinju. So yeah, it's mm. it was who you were thinking of.
1: Right. I have I have heard of the book, but I haven't. I have not read it.
0: It's good. It's but a good one.
1: I will go away and read it. <laughs> cool. Influenced.
0: Yeah, I was I was <laughs> really surprised. I when I showed that book, I was doing yeah, I was working like a English training school. And uh, mm. every week, um, the foreign teachers took turns to do like an English corner, and my stick was I did literature because none of the other teachers did that, and I busted out just the books I happened to have, which included an English copy of *The Good Earth*, and I was like, "This lady paralysed Buck, And then my students, who were adults, some of their <laughs> eyes lit up. They're like, "We know that book. <laughs> what?" Because I was expecting them to be very sceptical about um, right about you know a book about Chinese farmers written by an American lady, but.
1: Mm.
0: Yeah. Um, that's anyway.
1: awesome.
0: Yeah, it was a nice little moment. Books can do that in a way. Mm. I guess films can do For that sure. too, but books do it in a way films don't. That's mm. my very articulate way of uh, describing that yeah. phenomenon.
1: Nobody right. carries around a DVD anymore.
0: So no. It's hard no, to yeah. whip
1: it out and, and like get a reaction.
0: <laughs> and you won't look cool in a cafe flipping through no. your DVD box. No.
1: No. No, that would be really weird.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so that's quite a lot about Sutong and the various kind of issues he's dealing with, let's zoom in a little bit and look at his story, Petulia's Rouge Tin. Um, so I mentioned already that historical setting is a big thing in a lot of his stories, and it's a, it's a big thing here. So um, rather than me just explaining it, I'll ask you to describe for the listeners what's the historical setting or grounding of Petulia's Rouge Tin.
1: Um So Petulia's Rouge Tin. It's set in the 1950s. He doesn't give. I don't think he gives an exact date um, when it's so. set, right?
0: I don't think. Yeah, it's so, the start date. No, I think later in the book there's maybe a date about when um, uh, one of the characters leaves for the north. Yeah, one of the characters leaves right. for the north in 1955, but I don't think mm-hmm. we have a date as to when the action starts.
1: Right. Um, so let's say it starts in early 1950s, um, mm. because uh, let's say how how long maybe the book is like the span of eight years or something Mm. um anyway so historical setting is that we're in the 1950s china civil war just ended i believe um there is a lot of you know social turmoil there's a social revolution there is land reform and in general i think the whole period is described by sort of reform 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 and there are i think the big things that are related to the book is that there are two types of camps that people are sent to, to kind of re-educate in their mind and leave behind the thoughts of the old society, which are, you know, corruption and frivolous things and all of that. Um, and those are, so the Laogai camps, which are the labor camps, where you, you know, reform offenders would be turned into law-abiding citizens through labor. And then there are also the Laogia camps, which are the re-education camps. Um, and that's kind of where a lot of people went to for lack of a better word. No, I'm not going to say it. That's, I still live here. For, <laughs> they just went to also become law-abiding citizens, but through, you know, softer means. Um, there's also the Korean War. And I think we see sort of in the big context of things, China got like nuclear power in the 60s. So, mm-hmm. you know, the world is really seeing China reform and change and develop in ways way beyond anybody's imagination at this point. And uh, of course, uh, Mao Dedong is also here and he's um, on the background and he's um, making this all happen.
0: Right. Great answer. And uh, like specifically, who are our main characters and how is the social revolution and the, yeah, how's the social revolution aiming to shape them into new people
1: So they are two prostitutes. Um, we have Petulia, who it's, it's her Rushton, and we have Autumn Grace, and they are prostitutes, and they live. I would assume they live in, um, you know, in the south of China for sure. I don't think he gives it. I don't think it says that it's in Shanghai, but it must be around Shanghai somewhere. Um, and yeah, so they're two prostitutes, and they're taken away from their home at a place. It, it's. I think the street is like Emerald Cloud Lane or something like that. That
0: sounds right. Um,
1: and yeah, they're taken from the Red Light Pavilion. It's very central, And uh, they're taken to a uh, camp to be re-educated and to be brought into a new China where they will be low-abiding citizens and good wives and just in general be good and productive, effective contributions to the overall society, and can do their part in holding up half of that sky.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah, <laughs> a little windows popped up on my screen, but I don't think it's um, anything I need to worry about. Right. Yeah. Okay, that's derailed me slightly. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So we've talked a bit about the context at the beginning of the story. Something quite relevant to that happens at the end. There is a little boy whose name is, um, well, it's written in a. Uh, wade giles so s h s i n space h u a we'd probably say spell the hs with an x today using pinyin but this kid's called xinhua so what does xinhua mean why is that relevant here and why is he why is that his name
1: yeah so here it means um new china and the boy i don't know how much do you i always struggle with this like do we want to it's a tiny book so people can actually read this do you want just to just go for it
0: Uh, you can just Just screw in it yeah
1: okay all right. Well, um, it's the boy is born and in the new China and he's born sort of, you know, within the new China realm. And so he's named um, New China. In, Chi- in English, his nickname was translated as Griever. So it's all ki- all kinds of, you know, imagery that um, Autumn Grays and Petulia both associating with the new China as it took away many things from them. Um, so I think, yeah, that's pretty much it. They. He is the embodiment, quite literally, sorry, of, the, of what's going on. And he will live on with their ideals um, that are hidden from him because he finds Petulius in at the end of the book and he's kind of wondering, what is this mama? And she says, it's nothing. Don't worry about it. And she leaves, um, I think it's Autumn Grace, she leaves her life behind. And uh, the new China doesn't know what happened to all these people that went to education camps. All of that history is forgotten. And that's where we stand with Petrullia's Rushten.
0: Right, so the listeners might be noticing that we've got characters with names like uh, Autumn Grace, Petulia Griever, and also mm. names like uh, Xinhua, and there's other characters whose names are Chinese names. So um, I suppose normally I would talk about this in this like kind of technical site of questions, but just for the sake of keeping a nice flow going, um, there is a translator's note at the start of this book that talks a little bit about these names. Did you, you, well, when you reread the book for this episode, did you also reread the translator's note at all?
1: Yes. So, um, so the translator's note, so the translator's note was actually something that I, uh, really pushed for with the translators because there was a lot of these things that I thought would come up as questions right. that might be nice for the explanation. And to be honest, it does seem quite academic to, for the translator, before you read anything, here are like 15 facts that you must know, you know, and that <laughs> kind of ruins the whole, just enjoy it for the fun of it. Um, but um, yeah, so I think the translator's note does kind of put us in that context and in that mindset of that they were in. And we had many discussions with them about are using PN or way Giles for their names versus the names that they came up with. Um, and I think it does work in this book. Normally, I think most people would steer clear from translating names because even if a name is not understood, you know, you're not, maybe you're not meant to understand everything. You're just meant to read it as it is. And you know, at least here, the names that were given were kind of you know, they, they were evocative of the whole story. And the reason why the names were there is because obviously these are prostitutes. And thankfully, they're not, you know, whatever the, the stripper name of yours is, like your first pet and, we, I don't know, the street you lived on. Um, so they're, they're just a bit more descriptive uh, to give the reader a sense of the whole place and to kind of bring them back to the fact that even though... They were re-educated and they went through this turmoil and they had this whole story. They did start off being prostitutes and they they were quite happy with their lives. It's not like it's not like you read the book and you think, oh no, these women had horrible lives. They didn't. They very much enjoyed themselves. Um, of course, again, they were raised in this patriarchal world where they thought they could do no better. But um, yeah, that's kind of where the translation of the names came from. And there are many other things that the translator's note kind of explains to the reader. And I would almost recommend to read the book first and then go back to the translator's note. And then you're just kind of like, oh, this is you know the final piece of the puzzle that I was missing to understand it. Um, but it is just customary to have it at the start.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah.
1: And also... The I must say the translators themselves, Jane Way, and and Mears, are so experienced that them working together, it was really, really easy to <laughs> work with them and kind of work on a book with them because they knew exactly what they wanted to um, put out there, and they knew what the final what the final version. Want- they knew that the final version had to look very, very similar to Sujang's writing, but it also had to be very accessible for the English reader,
0: right. and
1: they. Put those two things together in such a way that the names, I think, Petulia and Autumn Grace, which we would normally steer clear from, we Mm. wouldn't normally translate names, um, work really well in terms of the whole text. Um, So, again, kudos to the translators. They did an incredible job and the book reads really, really well because of them.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. It was was a pretty breezy thing to read prose wise and... The kind of colourfulness, quote unquote, of the names fitted, yeah, fitted the kind of context. Um, mm. I've got another question about the the story, just my experience of reading it, because I felt that the first half was it was quite funny. There was a lot of funny wee moments. Uh, the prostitute characters, Petulia and Autumn Grace, and some I think some of the other uh, ones, whether they were a named character like Lucky Phoenix or just background figures without names they seem to kind of give a detached and maybe like almost like a meta commentary on the historical uh, events that they're being forced to take part in kind of just ridiculing what is um, happening whilst at the same time being kind of powerless and then in the second half it it felt a bit different to me in some ways it felt like it shifted from a a comedy into a tragedy or or at least a drama so I don't know how great the term tragedy comedy is but like if i was trying to really concisely describe the story it might be one i would pull out the hat um do you think it's a good kind of descriptor or category or would you um place this story somewhere else in the the kind of world of genres and adjectives
1: um no i think you could go with tragic comedy let's go with that um yeah. and i think it, yeah and i think it in general it's just a very tightly Plotted narrative that reflects Mm. the different Paths of the people at the time Um, So I think the reason why it's probably So bizarre at first really Is because people themselves had no idea What was coming and what was expected of them In this new China And then when reality hits Wow does it really hit It becomes abundantly clear what the new life And the new order is really going to be like And that's when we have a name pop up Like Griever and you know New China at the very end Mm. Um in xinhua So when you're a reader, I think there is so much interpretation of this stuff that really happens on a very subconscious level, like it did for you. You know, you're thinking, what does it mean? Like why did the tone change and so on? Mm. And I think the dark humor almost that Su Tong has throughout the book is perhaps more understood in a context of somebody who has actually lived through this or has known somebody who has lived through it. Because, right. you know, his I mean, coming from again I must say that coming from Russia, you know, our countries have, in some respects, very similar paths, Um, in some respects, very different. They should never be compared, you know, all all the time like they are. (laughs) But um, it does seem to be sometimes it's so tragic that it's almost funny you know it's like somebody goes to a nunnery within the Chinese context like what or there is you know aquamarine panties flapping in the wind as they drive away or whatever it is you know it's almost so crazy and absurd that it feels very light-hearted and some of the characters actions don't really make much sense I guess until you really think back to people really didn't know what was going to happen. People really didn't understand what was the the future that was waiting for them at the end of it
0: all. Um, I'm a really big fan of gallows humor and some of the best kind of short form gallows humor jokes I've heard are anecdotal ones that are attributed to like Russia in its um, maybe darkest uh, moments of like under Stalin or whatever. Although I can't, the only one I can think of that comes to mind is what is it? Um... They pretend to pay us and we pretend to work but that kind of genre of um, an absurd tone that's kind of a way of dealing with a pretty crazy situation.
1: yeah favorite joke
0: is jesus
1: you know and you're just kind of like yeah whatever (laughs) as, as people who grew up in these weird places where you just don't understand nor do you ever feel that you have control over anything. It is just what you fall back on is just laughing about everything and being very positive and lighthearted even when times are really, really tough. And I think that's what really comes across in this book as well. Um, is that, And I think because of the names, actually, I think that kind of adds to the lightheartedness that really is part of Hong Hongfang um, in mm. Chinese. And if we just kept the names the same, perhaps it wouldn't have felt the same I'm sure people would disagree with me, and I really welcome that, but... Um, In personal opinion, I think it works well.
0: Mm -hmm. Another thing you said there about the characters at first being kind of incredulous because everything's happening so fast and they're being told change is coming and then it kind of becomes real eventually and they're like, oh, damn, change was coming. That just reminds Mm -hmm. me of the, um, I I don't know if it was one of the the UK cabinet ministers or Prime Minister um, Boris himself announcing, you guys are going to need to be in quarantine for up to three months. And when you see that headline, you're like, oh, damn three months. That's crazy. Imagine that happening. Mm. And it's happening now. It's real.
1: Yeah,
0: It's strange, but it's, yeah, it's a different kind of strange because at one time it's something you're told is going to happen, but you're not living it. And then, you know, time, you can't stop time, time marches forward. And then eventually you are living through it and then hopefully you get to the end of it.
1: Yeah. And I guess the, the weird thing is that living in China, one of the strangest things I found about this whole pandemic is that, you, we, we saw the obviously, we weren't in Wuhan and we were, you know, we were so far removed from that. But we saw the news headlines coming from there, and it was very much like, okay, this is going to be everywhere. And, you know, people here really locked down and so on mm. and so forth. And then we would be calling our friends in the UK and they'd be like, oh, it's never going to reach us. Like, don't worry, we'll just go to the pub, it'll be fine, you know. you know what whiskey will solve everything and then you speak to them now and they're like oh wow yeah i really need new hobbies and you're like yeah but you see we all see history repeat itself and we all see these you know signs that this might happen to you but we all feel immune to it somehow um when we're not you know and that's kind of what the everybody kind of uses that sense of humor and the weirdness of it all to deflect from the reality of the situation and sometimes that's pretty dark
0: i'm going to google something a bit strange right now and it'll make sense after i've googled it i'm going to google the battle of (laughs) culloden which was a the last battle of the um, jacobite rebellion so happened in scotland wasn't as strictly a scottish rebellion but um the battle of culloden and i'll explain why this is relevant to what you were talking about once i have the year it happened in
1: I must say, I just binged the whole of Outlander, so I know very well about the <laughs> Battle of Culloden.
0: <laughs> you know, a, a weird thing about uh, Outlander—what? Almost no one in Scotland watches it.
1: Oh, that's not weird. Like, I wouldn't watch something about like Russian. There is one show I think it's called Tsars or something mm. about uh, about the Russian, you know, Tsars, um, the, the Nicholas II. But they they filmed it all, and there's literally. They're walking down Red Square and there's the Lenin, um, Jesus, what's it called in English? The his dead body where he's parked,
0: uh, parked where he's
1: lying. <laughs> yeah, but, but what's it called? The whole thing,
0: I don't know. I just I would just say Lenin's embalmed corpse,
1: no, 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 like the proper term, the mausoleum,
0: mausoleum, Lenin's
1: mausoleum. So they're right. walking down the Kremlin and they see you see Lenin's mausoleum, and this is a you know about Nicholas II, Whoops. so it's ridiculous. Yeah, Ma- so I think. In general, I understand why you, you, would, well, be, you would find that appalling that I um, watch
0: it. Well, from what I gather, like it's very, it's very romantic, but it's a pretty accurate depiction of history. It's made in Scotland and so on. But the, I think the main reason people don't watch it here is it's not on one of our main channels. And I, really? I don't know what Russian TV is like. In oh. sc- Scottish TV, we don't really get many historical dramas set in Scotland. Outlander is really a standout in that respect. Mm. And, and yet no one's particularly bothered to know.
1: Anyway, um, this is all
0: kind of beside the point. Um, yes.
1: The reason I'm bringing
0: up Culloden <laughs> is Culloden was the last battle on land that happened in Britain, mm. and that was mm. over three, no, not almost three hundred years ago. So I feel like the sense of like just this can happen, crazy things can happen inside the country in the UK is really diminished. I mean, I guess the last crazy thing that happened was maybe World War Two, which did mm. touch the UK, but never actually. I mean, bombs landed on the land, but there were no bat the only battles were in the skies. And even then it was really only over a small portion of the country. Whereas I guess a country like China or other other parts of the world, like even Korea, there are a lot of memories of much more catastrophic things. So maybe that's a reason why they've on some level they were more prepared for taking measures to stop the virus
1: right yeah yeah well i mean also china lived through sars and i Mm -hmm. i I was here during sars and it was um i thought that well i was i was quite you know i wasn't an adult so right i remember thinking it was scary but i um i thought the whole period was over quite quickly but apparently it was like an 18 week lockdown in beijing and we're only in week 16 now so yeah it's still very i think sars everybody kind of had this unresolved grief almost over it so mm-hmm. as soon as somebody said okay there is um something else going on everybody just put on their masks and uh, decided to stay home
0: <laughs> right um we have veered a little bit from the topic so let's veer back in <laughs> yeah but you know on, on one hand talking about the the lockdown and the virus is interesting on the other hand everyone else is doing it so <laughs> I'm not going to like I'm not going to seek out an epi- an epidemic themed Chinese piece of fiction and cover it because oh
1: I'm so glad
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah it's being done but by others mm. so yeah this last question this is a kind of a light hearted or straightforward one but that doesn't mean it's not important who's your favorite character in Petulia's Rooch Tin
1: um, can I say the tin um, I don't know I think.
0: Mm. You can't see. The I tin. Think,
1: Okay, let's go with the tin man. She, the tin, is the main character. Um, I think maybe maybe Autumn Grace, just because um, I don't agree with everything that she did, nor her actions, really, mm-hmm. but she was so strong-willed and capable, and she, you know, she, she just went for it. She jumped off that um moving vehicle and went after her destiny. Uh, so I don't know. So maybe her. Um, mm-hmm. she's a very strong woman. In general all all books kind of do this but i think more so it tends to be in the books that i really like just because of the again like the context and everything that's going on is that things aren't really black and white you don't really have somebody who is an extremely likable person and you know they can't do no wrong like you have let's say an outlander or whatever mm. you know um but everything is very much gray um so you, you don't really get to love somebody so much that so you want to follow the cult they're starting but um i think all characters are very they're, they're all very essential to driving the plot forward. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so probably the tin, and then number two would be Autumn Grace. Um, right. That's my answer.
0: <laughs> so, I guess we haven't described the plot for listeners who've not read the book, um, and we don't need to d- describe the whole thing, but I guess it's worth mentioning that we have two I, among the prostitutes, we have two characters who are basically the main characters of the story. There's Autumn Grace, who, like you said, is kind of the more strong willed and assertive. And then there's the titular char- at least the title, the, the titular character for the English translation, Petulia. So, like, how does how does Petulia contrast with them? Um, Autumn Grace. Could you describe that for the listeners?
1: So, Petulia, I think in general represents you know when you have you have that moment in your life and you think if that happened to me, I would definitely be Autumn Grace. Like that's, but most of most of us will definitely be Petulia, where yes. you kind of go along with everything that's going on and you don't really know what to do with yourself, so you just kind of follow the marching orders that you are given. Um, So Petulia really is probably most of us in this story. She, you know, she's taken away from her home and she's put into her education camp and then she has to make a life for herself and she doesn't know how and she makes a bunch of very questionable decisions along the way and she doesn't really know how to live in this new society that she's been told to live in. So that's Petulia. And Autumn Grace, on the other hand, kind of really tries to Break away from it and unlearn everything that she's thought wants to be true, um, but to her own way, not through somebody telling her what is right and what is wrong, but by, you know, running away and uh, leaving her friend behind and cutting off ties, which is extremely difficult and moving on with her life. And then at the end of it all, she's the one that's bearing the burden of a person who didn't really know what to do with themselves. So she is really the, if we had a hero, she would be the hero. Um, but again, she also makes some questionable decisions, and so would everybody. Um, so they're, they're two very, very different uh, women, but also they're also just humans, um, and they can't—they can't help the fact that you get scared, and you have fears, and you have confusion about what's going to happen. Um, and yeah, and one watches out more for herself, I guess, uh, than the other. And in some respects, that's a very good thing, especially reading a book that is about you know, of society becoming more collectivist and she's trying to break away from it.
0: Mm, cool. Um, yeah, it, it struck me when I was reading um, Yellow Bird Chronicle, the other the other um, Sutong story that I've read, I was kind of waiting for a, a hero character to emerge. And at first I thought I had one and then that was kind of snatched away from you, the reader. You mm. realize all these characters are pretty flawed or broken in, in one way or the other. And I, I feel like it's kind of the same here in petulia's um, Rouge Tin. Petulia is kind of the hero but she's not that great at being assertive at least initially and mm. you have Autumn Grace who's good at being assertive but isn't exactly a, a moral paragon and then the other characters we meet there, there's still there's no one you could really look to as like a ideal well either an ideal um, character objectively or even like an ideal um, kind of Lei Feng like hero of the new China there, there's no one like that in the story
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's kind of the beauty of it. It's just, it's just a tale of people and everything is kind of muddled in the middle, just like people are.
0: Yes, indeed. Um, So let's move from muddled people to pure technical questions. (laughs) Um, First thing I want to ask you about is what's the, well, we've kind of already gone over it, but let's kind of properly go over it now. What's the Chinese title of this book? And what's the English title? And how are they kind of related to each other?
1: Um, so Hong Feng is the Chinese title, which quite literally means rouge or blush. Um, so the blush you put on your face, um, and the title is obviously very different. The English title is Petulia's Rouge Ten, and in general there was a lot of discussion between uh martin jane and i in terms of how we wanted to put this title together because the the original intention was for us to just go with rouge but as you know the book is actually part of a series so the book is part of the china special series which mm. we have a few other titles in it so there's marrow um radish and uh of brown birds for example right so all of those mm. orange specials and we wanted Petulia's Rushtin to kind of fit into that mold, but also stand out in some way. And one of the things that we found is that <laughs> flock of brown birds and just titles that tend to be more clear and descriptive tend to appeal a little bit more to sort of a general reader. Mm. So we wanted to put, fold that into our decision making as well. So since the book was actually adapted into a film, and I think it was adapted into a film twice, but I'm not actually 100% sure. <laughs> Right, um, and neither of those were translated into English, I believe. Maybe that's wrong as well. So we need to double check on that. Clearly, I've done my research. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it made our job a little bit easier in terms of you know can can we change the, if there was already a really famous film you can't really change the title because then people are going to be like what the hell is this. Right. Um, <laughs> So when Jane Wynn Jen Pan, and Martin Merz and I all had these discussions about the title, we, they wanted to keep it as Rouge, but commercially speaking, one t- what titles tend to be a little bit less popular than those with th- two or three that are a bit more descriptive. Um, we decided to go with Batua's Rouge Den at the very end, even though I have to admit there was this whole Citizen Kane argument, um, which was, you know, why wasn't it titled Rosebud or Citizen Kane's, whatever you know (laughs) um but i think worked well in the end i think it really does and another thing that we had to consider working as you know a publisher you kind of have to make a bunch of different decisions as an editor and one of the decisions is how do you make it work as a cover how do you make it work in marketing how do you kind of put it all together and go past so obviously i no longer work at tango china but how do you stand you know, make it stand the test of time, and mm. I think Petulia's Rustin, in terms of the cover, which is beautiful. I love this cover. Um, our designer, Sodi which actually she designs all of the Penguin China titles, so it's just right. her. She's awesome, um, yes. and I think she should have her own book. Just mm. saying, she hopefully she hears this. I will send it to her once again. I'm just reminding her she should write her own book. Um, but the Petulia's Rustin. On the cover the tin is actually a tin from the time so it's a 1950s um rouge tin so this is what it would actually have looked like and each of the penguin specials has a, a symbol on the cover and yeah. i think we just had rouge and then the so we, we played around with it We looked at the rouge and the tin kind of sitting there but it just didn't quite fill the space right nor did it Will work very well overall, and then we also have the quote on the side that reads, "Overnight, the remnants of her old world, filled with the scent of rouge powder, lay out of reach beyond the walls." Which I think is a very beautiful description of a little snippet that what you're about to read is really about change and transformation, and it is also a story about women. Um, so yeah, I there was there's a bunch of things you have to go into. As more people, people way more knowledgeable than me, can tell you, but yeah, so that's kind of where we went with that, and I think Hong Feng works really well as a title for the Chinese book as well. And Sutong was just very happy with um, Petu's version as well, so we decided to go with that.
0: Sweet, it's it's good that um, the author was pleased with it. That's a nice sign. I know you're doing something yeah, right when they're when they're done with it. Um, <laughs> so the other books in the series. I have a physical copy of Radish. I've got the physical copy of Flock um, of Brown Birds. I don't have a physical copy of Yan uh, Yanka's Maro, but like mm. as, as a reader, I can say Radish jumps right out at me because I don't know. It's just got some kind of um, individuality, or um, I don't quite know what the word I'm looking for is, but it's got something there. It makes me think, oh, why is it called Radish? Whereas, right. like the single word title Maro, yeah, it just kind of sounds like it could mean something. I don't know.
1: Yeah,
0: <laughs> like some kind of grim or down-to-earth struggle. So I can see what you mean about a a one-word title being Mm. nice from a literary point of view, but from like a commercial get-a-person's-interest point of view, yeah, I can see why having more words might work better.
1: Yeah, and I think in general, it just kind of... so radish also, if it was like a really, if we had one strange word um, that was really central to the story. I mean, if we could have called it like prostitutes or sex or something, you know, <laughs> mm. but that's, that would have been really tasteless and horrible. Yeah. Um, so really, yeah, I think, I think it really, radish works really well. And also, I mean, the person who wrote radish has a noble Prize. So that
0: helps. <laughs>
1: we're kind of, we're kind of competing with something we can't really compete with. Even though <laughs> Sutong is also an award-winning author. Was incredible. Um, I really think this, and also it's a story about prostitutes um, who are really struggling and are trying to, you know, keep their individuality while changing. This kind of pulls it all together really nicely, I think. Um, Mm. If there are other people who disagree, um, I am sure there are, and I welcome it. Bring it on. Let's Mm. make multiple, I think all books should be translated like 17 times so we could all read our favorite stories from different perspectives
0: <laughs> yeah why not um yeah if any listeners have their own thoughts um and want to bounce them back to myself there's a gazillion ways you can do it there's the podcasts uh, instagram at church of fic there's myself on twitter at angus likes words there's a discord which has got um lots it's got a main channel group chat lots of other ones i make a new little group chat for every single episode i guess you can probably also find um Anya, is there anywhere on the interwebs? I mean, we'll plug this at the end, but is there anywhere where you would be able to talk to listeners who wanted to discuss these things?
1: Um, yeah, I have. I do have a Twitter. Um, my Twitter, I think, is at Gonch Anya, G-O-N-C-H-A-N-Y-A. Um, so you can talk to me there, message me, whatever. Tell me your all of your grievances with this <laughs> translation, or whatever else you want. Um, pitch me new books. Anything that you want to do, I'm there. But otherwise, you can um, yeah reach out to Peony as well if you have any cool books that you're working on and want to see translated.
0: Thanks for that. We'll we'll plug that in again at the end. But just a, a good thing to mention. We'll just okay.
1: Selfless promo. Selfless. Yeah. Self, yeah.
0: Selfless. Um,
1: selfless. I'm. Mean, it's. It's. Shameless. <laughs>
0: shameless. That's. Shameless.
1: I was like, selfless? No. Um yeah I'm, I'm on my second glass of wine here so <laughs> let's, let's keep it going
0: <laughs> I foolishly didn't even refill my tea but um oh god I've got the I've, it's in my soul now I've got the tea energy so um, This
1: is going to be hell of an edit I'm so sorry
0: Honestly it's fine um the the network problems are far worse than any wine and juice problems um so yeah <laughs> speaking of um, problems in the sense of like questions things to be addressed and um, not in the sense of things that are wrong necessarily and um, this story is one of the few i've covered that makes use of wade giles which is the old kind of system that chinese characters or chinese words were written using the alphabet uh, romanization as it's known and it's not 100 percent in pinyin pinyin is there too so pinyin is these days if we see an author's name or any Chinese place written in the alphabet, it'll be in Pinyin. So the example we gave earlier was uh, xinhua New China, in Wade-Giles. The Hua is the same, I think, or it might be H-W-A, but the Xin is H-S-I-N. Whereas in Pinyin, it's X-I-N. So yeah, mm. long story short, this book uses Wade-Giles sometimes and Pinyin. Other times. So, for um, listeners who aren't Dongguatong like yourself, Anya, what is it that led um, the translators and maybe the editors of this book to take go down a slightly more old school or even hybrid path?
1: Um, so the way jail system, it really just depends on the context when the book is written and mm. when the book is set. Uh, so we see it's set, it's written when already we have the Pinyin system that's very widely in use. But the Wade-Giles system, I think, is maybe like 1910, 1911, 12 or something like that, when yeah. we had the dictionary come out, right? Um, so it was created by foreign men um, to transcribe Chinese characters. Um, and then the Pinyin was actually created by the Chinese people. And then another shameless plug here, I reckon, should be another Penguin special, which is David Moses' book. A Billion Voices, which is really good and it's about the Chinese language, so if you want to know a little bit more about that, he's a linguist and he wrote an awesome book and it's available as an ebook mm. anywhere, and it's also another one of these um, short ones, so you can just uh, enjoy it and learn so much and have some of that output that you so desperately desire. Anyway, <laughs> and <laughs> um, then, yeah, so we have the way gels here because the setting of the book is 1950s and the the way our system was more widely used at the time in books and so forth. Um, so that's where we go with that. And in terms of, obviously, there are some translations of the names, like we said, so the places and the actual names. Um, that's why we have the, again, the translators now to mm-hmm. really understand why the PAN system wasn't really there, you know, in the I think it was, I think I started using it in maybe like the seventies in the West. Um, so, Sounds about yeah. right. Yeah. So I think the the way really works here, um, and in general, I think there are there are actually plenty of books that use the way Giles. If you do read anything about China um, in the sort of twenties, thirties, forties, fifties, and it is quite strange. So the difference between the big difference between way Giles and P. if you are studying or learning Chinese language, you might think that people who wrote this are crazy because you don't really understand anything that they're saying because it doesn't really sound right to you. Um, Mm. But yeah, so the Pinyin is the one that you see when you're studying Chinese and you see it on top of the characters or maybe instead of the characters, Mm. whichever level you're at. Um, But the way Giles is just what uh, the white men came up with to make sense of the language they didn't understand. Or understood, but wanted to. Relate back to the people that didn't understand it.
0: Mm-hmm. The the way Gilesism that always makes me go what it's a Mao well, so also Pinyin Mao Zedong is Mao Zedong in Wade Giles it's like Mao Zedong and like mm. I remember <laughs> I had a, a film this was long before I had any particular interest in China I had a film studies teacher during my English degree who was she was introducing us to oh the French yeah French uh, lefty filmmaker Jean Luc Godard. Who was one of the French people in the seventies that was kind of had a strange view of what Maoism was and thought it was an amazing thing and it could be applied in France? And our teacher said, "Yeah, Mao Tse Tung." And even at the time, I was like, "That's that's not what he's called."
1: <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like I think it's it's quite interesting because it's like if you. I guess in the modern context, like Wei Gels is what you think Chinese sounds like, and then Pien was a bit, it's kind of what it actually sounds like. Right. Um, so it is just, it's quite different to the ear, but both of them are valuable in their own time frame, and they're both, um, they are both very widely used. And I think, yeah, if you see it written and you don't really understand it, just say it out loud and you'll probably get it. Yeah. Is my my rule of thumb there
0: <laughs> mm. I, I remember I think in the translation the translators note they gave another reason for using Wade Giles because it has a kind of old school feel to it um, I'm trying to think of an example that's better than Peking and Beijing um, mm. is anything gonna come to me hmm. no yeah so here's one like the Qing, Qingdao beer um, mm. they've kept their name as Qingdao so if you see, and I think there's um there is a Penguin China book called The Siege of Tsingtao, not Qingdao, with the Q. Yeah. Um, and a, it has a kind of an old school feel to it. And I if I remember right, the translators were saying, um, Su Tong wrote this story in Chinese using kind of like old school style Chinese and they wanted to reflect that a bit in the language, which is why they another reason why they put some wade Giles in there. Am I remembering that right? Do you know?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think yeah. so. And I think there is There is loads of really interesting things that you can kind of, if you're talking about putting, if one of the things that you're reading Sutong for really is just to put yourself in that place, I think Mm. that's really the way to go. Um, But at the same time, again, you are reading it through a Western lens and, you know, it's, it's all, it all gets very complicated if you start to think too much about it. So. In, enjoy the way Giles um, that <laughs> they went with. And I think it does work. I really, really do. And mm. um, and I think there would be problems with kind of, if you put it all in PN, what would that mean? Um, because obviously you're already stripping away so much of what the original intent of the language mm. part of it was. Um, so where Giles really puts it back into context, like you said.
0: Right. Yeah. I have um, other like thoughts or absolutely uninformed theories about where Giles based on absolutely no reading but I don't think the podcast is the time to bash them out um so let's just keep going we've talked a little we bit you need to read
1: right? that David Moses book sorry well, <laughs> it's yeah. so good
0: well I, you're right I do and in fact I got a I'm well I'm getting it in in slices but I finished a really big piece of freelance work recently so a great big chunk of money's been heading my way nice. and I bagged. <laughs> Something like nine of the Penguin China books, including some pre-orders of the Zhejiang specials. So David, wait. Um, maybe we could talk about that when we're not recording. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, they, I used to live in in, in Zhejiang, so mm. I, I talked a okay. bit about the um, about um, Jiangnan on the last episode with with Eric Abrahamson, mm. and they looked a bit. They, to me, they looked a bit different. And they were authors I hadn't read before.
1: Out, out of all of them, The Postman um, by B.U., translated by Jesse Fields, is really, really cool. Again, mm-hmm. I'm biased. I live in Shanghai right now. Right. So it's an awesome read, but it's like a spy detective story about oh, Postman. Cool. And it's really, really cool. Yeah.
0: Mm. Right. So you've mentioned a little bit about dealing with this book as an editor and as a publisher with like technical and a commercial um, kind of perspective Is there anything else you could say about that? Or have we kind of covered it from every angle that's worth talking about?
1: Um, I think that's pretty much it. I mean, the, the main thing as a publisher, really, we just had a really great team working on it. And one thing actually that is really really cool about this book for me personally is that um, this was the first time I worked with peony because they represent Sutong, and right. so it led me to my next job. <laughs> so I, personally, this is I owe a lot to this book, and it's a really really great book in mm. general. Um, marketing wise, um, as you know, Penguin China is part of Penguin Australia, so all of their ASBNs are Australian. Mm. Um, so yeah, it also had a really great reaction. Um, we saw some really cool things happening um yeah so in general it was a really cool book i think yeah w- the blurb was quite hard to write because for such a small story it has so much packed in it so we just focused on the relationship between the two women and what happens in it um but yeah it was uh it was an awesome story to work on i'm really happy with it
0: cool right so that's the end of our technical questions uh, and i have some miscellaneous questions so The first one is one I've been inflicting on all my guests the last few episodes. I'm going to ask you if you can suggest a word of the day, a a Chinese word of the day for this episode. Maybe one suited to Sutong or this story by Sutong. Have you got one?
1: Um, So I was trying really, really hard to think about this um, question. But I I can't really think of a word to do with Sutong because I think we just need to ask Sutong what his favorite word is. (laughs) But... um, well, I should have done that. Anyway, um, but <laughs> <laughs> the most under... I think, I really, really, really think that the most underrated word in the Chinese dictionary is ting, like ting de ting, mm. because it's just, first of all, it's super cute. It means dear, and it is so sweet. So I just love that word in general. So I, I obviously, I use it all the time. It's very... And it's not, it's not like a weird thing to use, like you call everybody ting, you know, you go on Taobao, everybody's a ting and you see your friend, they're a ting. You see your loved one, they're a ting. Um, so it's just very lovely. Um, and obviously this is a story about friends and they are both to each other. They're, they're tings. <laughs> um, so yeah, um, mm. I love that. I also really love the Chinese emails kind of start with like, you know, hey, dear, or I don't know, it makes me feel all warm and mushy inside. Mm. So yeah. Um, so if you see your chinese friends um call you dear don't be alarmed it's very sweet and uh, replace all babes with ting is my command here it's super cute and it's really easy to say i think that's a really nice thing about it too
0: yeah i'm i'm trying to think who i might use it for like my my wee sister she's called jasmine that's Lee right so i might say like you know not that I would write my 13-year-old sister an email, but like 亲爱的小魔力, something like that.
1: Yeah, or like just anybody can be a Ting Ting, and mm. it's really sweet. And, and yeah, I don't know. It just, um, it feels really nice. I don't know. I obviously, I am like a foreigner, so I, maybe I'm tone deaf, and I just don't <laughs> realize that everybody's being really, um, you know, <laughs> weird to me. But I find it really sweet that everybody kind of uses sing all the time. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't feel weird because there isn't that connotation of it being, I don't know, sexual or Mm -hmm. in any way, you know, old fashioned or anything like that. So I really Mm -hmm. like it. And I do have some Chinese friends that, you know, in Ben in English call me dear. And (laughs) I think that's so nice. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. So there we go. I think my word of the day is sing. I feel like it should be like part of our dictionary.
0: Mm, For sure. Yeah. Um, that's a character. It's. I don't. I don't really know how to explain this, but that's a character where just like I don't think its shape necessarily looks anything like what it means. But it's a character whose shape I quite like. Like there are some characters where the shape is irrelevant. I just recognize it. I know what it means. Others, I'm like, oh yes, this is this is a character I like. It's a bit like numbers. Mm. Like if I see a number that ends in five, I'm like, yes, you're one of my favorite <laughs> numbers. This, this is one of my- five. Yeah, because it's an easy times table, and it's tidy. And it's an alternative to doing things in twos or fours, you know? It's like the best odd number. It's my—it's the only odd number I like is five, I would say. Like, I don't really, oh, really? like counting in threes. I like counting in twos and fives.
1: Uh-huh. You know, people who have OCD, most, like, <laughs> most of them really like the number three. So, like, mm. anything that's times three. Um, so, I guess it's interesting. I I know very little about this. I just, I don't know. I've probably read it somewhere. i mm. heard it somewhere.
0: I um, In the episode on radish, I talked a bit about um, synesthesia. We, we highlight or just like the way mm. you see things and like the peculiarities of like, I don't know if kids, you could say kids have OCD, but particular compulsions or obsessions or associations that your mind gets when you have a, a child's mind. And I've, I think I fixed on five around that time. Like I associated it with red, mm-hmm. which was my favorite color. But oh, yeah.
1: wow. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Are you, are you, sorry, you would like some of the specials then? Mm. Some of them are red,
0: <laughs> right? Yeah, the Hong Kong. And I think
1: ones. there are five of them. Yeah. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
1: No, I think there are six. Yeah, cool. Yeah. No, so I. That's really that's really sweet. Mm.
0: Yeah. Um, Number five. I, I should do that one day, like stay up until three AM and make a list of um, Chinese characters I like, because there are some there I I don't necessarily remember what they are, but I'll like I think Han like the Han people or the Han River, that one looks cool.
1: What's your Chinese name?
0: Well, probably Xiao'an or Angus Su. Oh. An-an. Probably those three. My my profile on Paper Republic is Angus An, but my WeChat name is Angus Angus Su. Nice. Yeah. What about yourself? I like
1: it. Um, mine is very simple. So my because my dad's a Chinese historian, they kind of named me to also have a good Chinese name. Right. So mine is An. Um, so An, like ping, An, that An and then yeah it means sort of like elegance um so it works in chinese mm. or english and i have the same last name um as my dad and his well, chinese last name is Kent Kan. can yeah Kan. in kind of can um so it's kind of uh, yeah and my we do because we're in quarantine well we we were in lockdown and everybody kind of had to learn each other's names all of our neighbors and right. now whenever i walk down the, because my name does sound like it's kind of like you know, like somebody who has been here for a while or something like that. Um, mm. It's not like, I don't know, something like that doesn't really make sense um, together. Mm. I do have um, a, a bunch of IEs that now go, eh, yeah, <laughs> so I was a walking past. So I feel like a celebrity now. My little compound. Some characters are, are, are and they're not all made equal, apparently.
0: <laughs> oh, I, don't, I don't feel that way. Is that the same, is that Ping An? an is that the same An in my Chinese name? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, I'm biased, but it is a good one.
1: It is a good one. It, I, mm-hmm. I think, it is one of the best. I think the N is just very good.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm biased towards any word in English that starts with A because so does my name. It's important that we recognize our biases.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, there are also some really bad words, like I don't know, alienation. Or like, eh,
0: that's a cool word. It's a bad. It has a. It's a bad thing, but I like the word.
1: Yeah, well, like anonymous. Mm. Yes, that's mostly for me because I guess mo- most women wrote as anonymous, right?
0: Mm. right.
1: Anyway, um, <laughs> let's scrap that.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: but yeah, um, cool.
0: Okay, that's our word of the day, <laughs> chin. Um, yes. Next chin. question. This is one I asked Eric Abrahamson as well. Um, what drink would you pair this story with?
1: Oh man. Um, so I guess actually, now that you mentioned Sindao. Um, I think it would be, it would be, um, it seems how, because I don't know, um, first of all, yeah, the, the way is appropriate. I have actually met some people before that didn't really put the two and two together, which is, I guess, speaks to the fact that the two systems are just seem so separate, but they are part of the same kind of mm. cohesive idea that we're just trying to make a sense of a language. Um, but yeah, and also it's a very Beijing drink and I'm from there, um, so yeah, I would I would go with that although maybe also maybe something really cool that's very hip right now something like the there's a lot of brew pubs in Beijing mm. um, there and, and a bunch of them are kind of manned by sort of foreign and Chinese powers coming together and it's all about you know creating all these uh, puns on Chinese history and there there is I think a, like a great leap brewery um. <laughs> And that's kind of, um, they do also really good beer.
0: Mm. Maybe
1: one of those. Um, that's a very wai answer.
0: No, um, well, it's well, okay to be a lawai who drinks. Pepper.
1: Yeah, it definitely, yeah, I definitely think it has to be an alcoholic drink. Mm. Um, just because there is, um, you're going from, you know, um, one life to the next. And you need something to keep you going along the way. Um, although mm. I'm drinking wine right now and it's, also pure, perfectly suitable and very classy
0: yeah well if you do <laughs> if you do contact su tong to ask him what his favorite word is you could also ask him if he's an ipa guy or a stout guy or something
1: oh, okay yeah that, that may be my last conversation with him he might be like <laughs> what what are you talking about <laughs> never
0: contact me again
1: yeah no he's you he, yeah we're not that close no. so maybe maybe, so not. maybe maybe not but um yeah I do think he might be a bit like confused why I'm asking him about my favorite word. Or maybe yeah. his favorite word is something really simple that we haven't really... Like, have you done the word shu, like, for book?
0: Not, no, I mean, we've, I, most of these episodes I forgot to do a word of the day. Um, so now I'm standardizing uh-huh. it. We all have them. It's part of my questions template. But no, mm. um, and most of the words that have come up have been two-character words. I think your oh. might be the first single-character word.
1: Mm, Interesting interesting mm. what does that say about me yes. i don't think it
0: has to say anything
1: <laughs> okay <laughs> well, we,
0: we were talking earlier about one title uh, one word book titles maybe that's um, yeah. i don't know at least that's a recurrence of a similar idea next question is also silly given what i've said about sutong and historical setting we both brought this up several times um, if you could go back to any point in chinese history and any place um and be anyone where would you go when would you go and who would you be?
1: Um, yeah, I have no idea. Do you have an answer to this? Have you ever answered this yourself? Uh,
0: um, I, I have Anna. I think I would probably end up with multiple answers. I have one. I wouldn't mind going back to like old Shanghai and being some sort of literati, hanging out um, in the cafes xun used to hang out in. Um, mm. And I think it would also be really interesting to be someone on the Silk Road I mean that so that's not necessarily a fixed place but have either going west to east or east to west and I don't know how many people actually did this but like say starting in like Italy or even further west and ending up anywhere in the Chinese Empire would be amazing considering how few people would have done that at that time so being one of those people would be really cool but there might be a high risk of death so there is that factor in.
1: Well your life is hard but at least Angus. It's very short. <laughs> yeah, I'm just, I'm
0: Sorry, as much in as I can, and before uh, I die somewhere. I'm gonna, in.
1: I'm gonna, I'm gonna knock on wood here. Um, but yeah, the, um, I don't know. I guess as a woman, you kind of do want to be a man just to mm. see what that power is like. Um, sure. But then I have to say the one person in history, like in Chinese history, that I'm really fascinated about and I want to learn more about is Cheng Yi Sao. Okay. Um, and she was a female pirate.
0: I've heard <laughs> about her.
1: Yeah, and she was a proper badass. Um, and I think she was, I mean, it was like the early 19th century. Yeah. She was, of course, like very problematic. She had a very hard life. Um, but she also had like, I don't know, like 300 ships and about like 40,000 men and women and probably mm. children. And um, yeah, and so it's, it's really cool. And she entered... Battles with like the British Empire and uh, the Qing Dynasty, which is um, amazing. So she's a she's a, one of those people that I really wish I could read a really awesome book about. Mm. So I really want to go. I would love to go back and kind of see what that's like and just be in her skin for maybe probably just like twenty minutes and then yeah. be done with
0: it. Avoid the sticky ending.
1: Yeah, it's just it's a lot, um, and I don't think I would be able to handle it. People would recognize that I definitely was not Changi Sao. <laughs> as soon as they get on that ship and i'm like oh no please get me out of here um so yeah that's probably my answer
0: yeah that's that's made me think um someone i would be for 20 minutes um i don't remember his name but the guy who led the taiping rebellion who thought he was jesus's brother that's a head i'd like to be inside briefly
1: yeah but that, it's it's one of those things where you're like that would be so cool but really but then if you think about 20 minutes 20 minutes is also a long time. Like mm. even 20 minutes would be a long time. I think maybe even five minutes would suffice. Just to kind of look around Say a few things and then get the hell out of there. Yeah,
0: a lot could go wrong in 20 minutes. That's very true
1: Yeah, and we know from the Battle of Culloden that <laughs> Very many things can go wrong in 20 minutes
0: mm-hmm. So yeah. yeah. Rest in peace soldiers of Culloden oh. um, Okay, last miscellaneous question. Are you working on any projects just now? I guess either for yourself or for peony and are there any works or platforms you'd like to promote
1: um so i mean as agents we're always working on something mm. but um once those are, books are out i'll definitely let you know um my personal twitter as i said i think is um, so g-o-n-c-h-a-n-y-a um mm. and if anybody has any cool book ideas out there but they're in translation or original non-fiction i'd love to hear them and in terms of promotion peony does have a twitter page of uh their own which is at marisha dot, uh, marisha peony so M A R Y S I A P N E. peony mm-hmm. um on twitter and then on instagram we do have a cool hip all millennial and pink instagram that we're trying to promote um mm. which is peony literary agency um and me saying that probably kind of negated as trying to be hip and cool it's and ironic <laughs> Yeah. And then Tender Leaves, we do also have a Twitter and it's at The Tender leaves. And it's also, you know, we try to be aesthetically pleasing mm-hmm. and what have you on there. And share a lot of kind of if you're a translator or anything like that, or if you require editorial services, they're a great platform to seek those out as well. But in general, I would just point anybody to um, great translators and writers um, and Paper Republic always. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. Yep, I think that's, that's all the miscellaneous questions. Okay, so um, before we go our separate ways, Anya, I'd like to take a chance to direct the listeners towards some further reading. So um, if our listeners go on and read Petulia's Rouge Tin and they enjoy it, where else would you point them? And any books are allowed. doesn't strictly have to be books from China, but if uh, you prefer that kind of focus, then that's fine.
1: Um, definitely go read other um, Sutong books. As well as other books by Penguin China, because they're all really well curated. Um, mm-hmm. But then also, like I mentioned before, Wang Ai Yi, Zhang Yiling, um, would be really great resources um, of anything to do with the period. And last book, actually, I was thinking is um, one of the books that I really, really love is Lotus by Zhang Mi Jia. Um, and it's also part of the same, like a similar theme. So, Readers who'd like the two would probably really really enjoyed that. Um, yeah, that's kind of it I, I can not really, I don't know. Yeah, I think it is a little broad to think outside of the China book circle And obviously also I don't know every book that's out there. So if right. I'm missing something that is directly related. I'm very very sorry um, Yeah,
0: that's okay. Um, you're not expected to be like the, the panopticon of all the books <laughs> in the world. No, that's you. Yes. That's me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) He said, sounding a little bit too excited. Uh, Yes. Yes. Um, so last question. Well, I think it's the last question. What are you reading just now?
1: Um, I am loving the eighth life by Nino Hretashvili, um, which is, she's a, uh, she's a Georgian author. Right. And I absolutely love it. Um, So that is besides, like, all the work stuff that I read. Um, And I have some Georgian roots. My grandfather is Georgian. um, So I don't know. It's just the whole book is beautiful, and there's 900 pages of it. So it's just pure gold. It has chocolate. It has amazing family dynamics and really interesting characters. It also has Georgia. And I mean the country, and I I hate that I have to specify that. (laughs) But yes, I do mean the country. Um, which has, you know, amazing wine and scenery and great people. And I would really, really recommend it. And I think the publisher scribe are doing a readathon. Um, I have pointed one of my friends to it because they're struggling to kind of get in the enjoyment of reading. And they are, um, you know, they do like 50 pages a day, I think. And it's kind of has some questions for you to think about. So you kind of feel like you're learning something if you're that kind of person. Mm. Um and you can follow along and that's really cool and i love that book i really recommend Fantastic. it
0: um i'm gonna plug the thing i'm i've just started reading recently again because i'm enjoying it so much um and it's the first time reading some for my first time reading something japanese in a while i am a cat and i'm i'm bringing this up again because i've just googled it and i have the author's name not that i'm really good at pronouncing japanese names but he's natsume soseki i think and i'm gonna pair that like i said with the penguin china very early early piece of Chinese sci-fi cat country. So um, for people looking for things in the kind of cat's ballpark, I can say I'm a Cat starts out very strongly, and I can say I've heard a lot of good things about cat country. That really was the last formal question I had written down, but I'll just double check. Is there anything we've not talked about yet that you'd like to mention or anything that's been at the back of your mind?
1: Uh, no, I think I uh, quite literally, yeah. I'm so sorry, this is going to be such a long edit. <laughs>
0: it's fine. Um, this is horrible. That's, that's because of the internet. That's not because of you.
1: Um, how long do your interviews usually last?
0: Um, the I think once I had the show format worked out, that's where I kind of take as a standard. Like the first 10 episodes or so, I don't really count because I didn't have the format worked out. But I think the shortest guest interview I had once I had the format worked out was Chen Xiu-Fan, um, he gave he gave quite concise answers to my questions and we didn't ramble too much so not that it was a bad interview but that was about probably about 45 40 minutes and the episode was about an hour long and then the other end of the spectrum was also chinese sci-fi i talked to ken leo for Mm. like about three hours i literally watched the sun go down as i talked to him um and then edited down that episode was like two and a half hours i think um because it's amazing how much you can cut down when you take out silences and breaths so yeah, yeah um i think we're after the edit i think we'll be sitting somewhere around average but you know it's a podcast so there are no rules about how long or short it is
1: and i guess i like, think the one thing that i do want to say is that mm. i am also very much um in the learning about everything stage so Nobody should take me too seriously.
0: Yeah, yeah. I always remind <laughs> listeners as well. I'm not an expert. I'm an interested person.
1: Yeah, and it's cool to talk to you because you are the you are now the holder of all of our secrets.
0: <laughs> Spy master. Yes, master exactly. of whispers. Yeah, um, that's what I'm going for. I don't think that position is paid, but I think I could rake in some like blackmail money or something.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And yeah. I, yeah, and and I think just the status of it kind of pays for itself, you
0: know, mm-hmm. it's priceless. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so I think on that note, I'm going to hit the stop recording button. But just last of all, I'll say thanks so much for coming on the show. And it's been a really good chat. Well, that's pretty much the end of the show. All that's left now is the plugs. So I'm just going to go through these as smartly as I can first one I'm going to uh, go for is the Trochific map. So there'll be a link to this in the show notes. It's a custom Google map where I put a little place marker for every author that we covers hometown. And if the story has an identifiable setting, I'll add the setting to the map too and you can browse around it. You can see where in China this podcast has been talking about, but also where in the rest of the world this podcast's... Uh, covered texts have branched out to because some of the stories do extend beyond the borders of China. So it's a very fun wee thing. Uh, If you'd like to do something fun but with a social dimension and talk to other listeners of the show and also myself, I'd recommend that you join the Truchific Discord. Um, There are links to that in the Linktree set of links, which I have tagged as my top tweet on Twitter and are in my Instagram bio. So what is the show's Instagram, what is the show's Twitter? That's the next plug, don't worry. You can find me on Twitter at AngusLikesWords That is also the Twitter for the podcast I basically only tweet about things related to the podcast or related to Chinese Lit and there is the occasional other somewhat related to thought, but basically that's the place to go and that link tree uh, list of links is in the pinned tweet i.e. right at the top of my Twitter. The show's Instagram account is an official one, so it's at. T-R-C-H-F-I-C. That's a fun place to stay updated with the show. You can also contact me there in the DMs or in the comments if you are too afraid to jump into those direct messages. If you are a very big fan and would like to materially support the show, and by material I mean money, if you want to help me have money, <laughs> um, there's a couple good places to do that. One is the Truchofik Patreon that's especially good because there's lots of bonus content there that you'll unlock by giving me at least one US dollar a month to put it bluntly. Um, Hours and hours of um, bonus shows basically is what you can get. If you become a Patreon supporter, if you do not like the idea of um, an in theory, infinite amount of money coming out of your bank account because it's monthly and those months could go on forever. If you'd rather give a one off donation, the place to go is buy me a coffee where you can, figuratively speaking buy me a coffee although I'm more likely to spend it on beer or tea but shh, buy me a coffee and um, both of those platforms you just put the website's name and slash Trichific on the end t-r-c-h-f-i-c or just google them and um, of course the best way to support the show has no financial dimension it's about people it's a social thing it's spreading the word so if you like the show tell other people who you think might like it, tell your friends, tell your family, tell your re-education center manager before they brainwash you. Brainwash them and brainwash them into listening to my show. And actually, while you're at it, use your hypnotic powers to make them give me 10 US dollars on Patreon per month. If you could do that, that would be ideal. So until you've done that, 再见!